All right, well, church, I am so glad to be here with you. We are in the third week of our series, which is What is My Style? What is My Style? And so the premise of that is that here's the thing, guys, if you're a believer in Jesus, God has given you a unique personality, unique abilities, unique interests, unique experiences that equip you to make disciples in a way nobody else can make. And so God has equipped all of us as his church to use those individual, those unique personality styles to, everybody say it with me, make disciples. That is our goal. So say it with me, ready? Make disciples. That is the goal of the church. We talked about the great commission, right? That God tells us, he gives us a command to go and make disciples, but he also equips us. He gives us everything we need to make that happen. So everybody pause, look around in the room. Everybody just kind of look around real quick. Look around at some of those people around here. God has given us everything in this room we need to make disciples. That includes your peers. That includes the people around you. Um, we're going to read uh, a chapter in the book, of, or yeah, in the book of Acts, Acts 17. So, if you got your Bibles, turn to Acts 17, verses 16 through 34, and we're gonna we're gonna read a big portion of Scripture. Before we do, I've got a, a little story for you. When I was a kid, I think I've shared with you already. Uh, I've said this a couple times. I'm, I was a bit of a knucklehead when I was a junior high kid. Um, I uh, did some things the wrong way. And I did things in particular opposite of what Paul does in this passage. See, when I was a junior high kid, I was just learning that I probably should read the room. And I would attend every day. I'd go to school and I'd go to my social studies class. And in my social studies class, I had this great teacher. Where are my teachers at? God bless you. Thank you for you. Um, because you have to put up with uh, kids that were like me in class. And so I'd show up to social studies every day, and I was a procrastinator to the core, so I would never do my math homework at home. Instead, I would utilize, and I thought this was very clever, I would utilize my social studies class for my math homework. How do you feel, how do you think my, that went over with my teacher? Probably not very well. She got, she got wind of me doing this. She realized what I was doing. And this very sweet lady, her name was Mrs. Smith. I just remember, she's very sweet. She walks over to my desk and she grabs my math book. And I was like, mm-mm, I'm working on my math teacher. I'm, I'm working on my math. So uh, uh, no, I'm going to pull it back. Thus began an epic game of tug of war, which the whole class paused to, to witness me pulling at my math. And, she, and she's pulling and I'm pulling. And I'm like, this is school. I'm working on school. She's like, no, this is social studies. You need to be paying attention. I was not reading the room very well, was I? And as she was pulling and I was pulling, I got this idea in my head down in, the, in where that sin, that depravity part of my heart is. And I let go. And what do you think that book did? It, it just went right into her, right? And it just, it, and, uh, and there was my first class ticket to the principal's office, right? I had my own agenda for that class. And it was not the agenda for which I was supposed to be uh, engaging in. For a lot of us as Christians, we bring a lot of agendas to the table, don't we? We have a lot of things that we want to get done. We have a lot of wants and desires. And a lot of time we bring those to the table 
And those tend to become a priority over what's going on around us. See, we're going to look at the intellectual. Paul, Paul, the Apostle Paul, uses the intellectual style of disciple-making where he reads the room. He looks at what's going on and he utilizes what's going on in the room to his advantage to share the gospel and make disciples. My premise for us today is that we would look at the intellectual style of disciple-making. Now, this is pretty cool, guys. I, I found a modern-day rendering of what Paul would probably have looked like if he was alive today. And so, uh, here is our modern-day rendering of Paul. It, it's not real, um, but I thought that was pretty clever. Um, you guys are so gracious laughing at my jokes. Um, so, we're in intellectual style. We want to make sure that we make concessions for one another's faults. Make concessions for one another's faults. And so with that, let's read about what Paul does. Acts 17. Uh, If you look there, Acts 17, we're going to start in verse 16. In verse 16, it says this, Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. As he saw that the city was full of idols, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. And in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. By the way, the word philosophers, I used to really struggle with that word philosophers. I used to call them philosophical. Philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. For you bring some strange thing to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all of the Athenians and all foreigners who, and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. It was an ancient version of Facebook, or I guess Instagram for the younger people. Uh, Verse 22, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive, everybody say perceive, that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. That what therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then of God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being, uh, being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. 
The times of the ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Don't worry, guys, we're almost there. Hang on. Verse 32. Stick with me. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again on this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysus the Arab, uh, Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Would you guys pray with me? Lord Jesus, we just pray that you give us a sight to see the culture that we live in for what it is. God, would you help us not to have our heads in the sand, but instead, would you give us eyes to see and to speak within the context of the times that we find ourselves? Lord, we just pray, would you give us wisdom and insight? Help us to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Oh, Lord, we need you in this time. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So again, we're going through personality styles. I got uh, some of this as the base from a guy named Mark Middleberg, if you want to look. Um, but let's start with the, the exploits of Paul. Uh, the exploits of Paul. So Paul was a very educated guy. Uh, hence my picture. I tried to uh, picture what a, what a smart guy would look like. Did I, did I nail it? Some of you, maybe, maybe not, right? <laughs> Perfect, right? This definitely doesn't look like me. Uh, so highly educated. He was known as a Pharisee. Pharisees were really big on study. They studied the, the Torah. They studied the first um, five books of the Bible. Um, they memorized the Torah. Oftentimes, they would attend synagogue. Many, uh, by the age of 12, had many books of the Torah memorized. 12-year-olds, can you imagine memorizing some of the Old Testament entire books? Adults, can you imagine that? <laughs> right? So these were highly educated people. And so Paul was one of them. He studied, before he came to faith, he studied under a guy named uh, Gamaliel. I, I think I'm pronouncing that. I'm just going to say it really fast. And uh, hopefully you guys won't notice. Gamil, Gamaliel. And he was one of the most renowned teachers, educators of his day when it came to the, the Jewish religion, religion and the, the Torah. He, was, he had a high level of authority. So I want you to think about this. It's like Paul studying under one of the most known guys in the world at the time. He was that much of a studier. He rose the ranks of, of his study to the place where he was studying under this guy. He was accused of studying so much that he's gone crazy. Anybody ever accused you of doing that? Um, to take you to that passage, it's Acts uh, 26, uh, verses 24 through 25, uh, Paul. And he was saying these things in his defense. Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. You ever come across to somebody and they look at you like you're crazy, right? Well, people were accusing Paul here of studying so much that he was crazy. So he's highly educated. He studied a lot. He was known for study. 
And then he writes the bulk of the New Testament. Everybody kind of take, can you hold the New Testament in your hand? Kind of open the Bible, look for the book of Matthew and everything after the book of Matthew is your New Testament. And then after that, you get the letters, the bulk of those letters. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then it picks up in Romans. Starting in Romans, the bulk of that was written by who? By Paul. And so Paul, highly educated guy, he writes the bulk of the New Testament and he encourages and gives lots of prescriptions to the New Testament church. And he wrote the book of Romans, which many consider to be the most theologically dense book in all of history. If you've ever tried to study the book of Romans, you know that it is very dense. People kind of tend to say that, that it's his magnum opus. It was the greatest thing that he wrote. It was everything doctrinally he knew about God was, was put into the book of Romans. So let's set up the scene. Before Paul gets to Athens, he has to travel a little bit. And I'm not usually a map guy, but I thought because we're going through the intellectual style that I'd appeal to some of you intellectuals out there, Ross. Um, you see what I did there? Okay. So we have, here's the ancient world, right? We know Israel's down here. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of circle. So right here, we got like the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee. I'll, I'll tell you a story. One of these days, I crashed a drone into the Sea of Galilee where Jesus could walk. My drone could not. <laughs> and so you go up here and is, um, and forgive my handwriting, but this is Antioch up here in this corner. And so when we pick up this passage, Paul takes off from Antioch on his second missionary journey. And he probably had to come all the way around up into here. Um, and so let's zoom in on this area. And Paul's had kind of a crazy journey so far. He preached the gospel right here. I don't know if you guys can see that. He preaches the gospel right here at a place called Thessalonica, right? And at Thessalonica, people get angry at the gospel, very angry at the gospel. And so Paul then, did I lose it here? Okay. I'm trying to be too fancy for my own good. Um, so they get mad in Thessalonica. So Paul comes over here to Berea and he begins to keep preaching the gospel, but the Thessalonians chase him all the way over here to Berea. And then he takes this long trip all the way over to Athens. And that's where we pick up in this passage. He's in Athens. Now, wake up for all of you who are not the intellectual type and fell asleep for the map. You guys still awake? Still with me? Okay, cool. I just want to make sure. So we want to talk about some of the strengths that Paul's intellectual style brings to the table. Paul is definitely an intellectual type. And let's see the first thing we can pick up from this passage in particular is he lived by a set of principles. He was well studied and so much to the point where principles define what he did instead of what he wanted or didn't want to do. This is a really important thing for Christians, because as Christians, we understand and know that we have a sin nature. Everybody confess that with me. Ready? I have a sin nature, right? And so our tendency is to want to walk away from God. That's why the Holy Spirit enables us to then look at the word of God and begin to live by the word of God's principles, and principles are there to help us not do what we want to do, but instead live in the way that Jesus would have us live. So this is what a principle is. This is what a principle is. 
Um, so let's look at this passage, Acts 17, 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, so Paul's actively waiting. He's waiting in Athens right here for them at Athens. His spirit, so his spirit was provoked. Any of you ever been provoked? <laughs> How about driving around? I mean, uh, I've, I've driven around in Riverton long enough to know that there are a few people that are really good at provoking. Am I right? Um, just kidding. Everybody drives perfectly, right? So, no. So, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. What do we typically do when we're provoked? We react, right? It's like, I'm provoked. I'm mad. Like, even as a pastor, guys, sometimes I have to stop and pray when I'm cut off in traffic. Like, I am not going to pull up next to them and start shaking my fist. I, I'm not going to do it, right? I have to pray through this. Becky sees me over there. Like, she's like, what are you doing? It's like, I'm praying. I'm praying right now, right? I can't do this. I've been provoked. I've been provoked. Well, so what does Paul do when he's provoked? He goes to the synagogue and he starts reasoning. That's not a normal reaction, right? For most of us, this word, if you just, you know, X'd it out, and we would put raging. <laughs> and that would probably describe us, right? But that's not what Paul does. No, he, instead, he starts to reason. How many of you, when we look at what's going on in the world today, and we see it ravaged by sin, we're provoked, aren't we? Many of us are watching news, 24-hour news, which no other generation before us has had such incredible access to news all the time, right? And what does it do in our hearts? It provokes us, doesn't it? It drives us crazy. We get so riled up about all these things going on. And, and our typical reaction is we rage or we try to find uh, an enemy. And instead, Paul, he goes to the synagogue and he begins to reason. These are what intellectual types do. And, and so what we can learn from the intellectual types is instead of getting flustered with the times he engages with the gospel and with reasoning with the people around him, um, and the people at the synagogue. As you see, this was, a, this was a principle that he lived by. He, he went and he preached the gospel at synagogues often. And so here's a, here's a principle. Do you guys have a principle of meeting with believers often? That would be a principle that we live by, right? These are rules like, but what if I don't want to go to church today? Well, it doesn't matter. That's what my heart wants, but I'm going to live by the principle of going and being with God's people because I know that's better for me right? That's called a principle. There's another principle. This is uh, free for you if you write this down. I, this is one of the most important principles that I try to live my life by. It's preach to yourself and don't listen to yourself. I'm gonna, you're going to hear me say that a lot. Preach to yourself and don't listen to yourself because there really is a part of you that wants to run away from the Lord and his will for you. And you're going to have to preach to yourself the truth, right? That's a principle. Paul's principle was to go and reason with them in the synagogue. Guys, for us, for intellectual types, what we can learn is we put ourselves in a position of, of walking in principles where we would end up making disciples. Instead of getting upset at the culture, we engage the culture in reasoning. Instead of, how many, you ever tried to win an argument with your kids when you're being emotional? How does that usually work out? It usually ends up with something like this. I'm right. You're wrong. Go to your room. Right? <laughs> and, and instead, and you can't always rationalize with kids. Can we get an amen on that? 
But with the culture, instead of throwing a fit or getting emotional, maybe we should pause and stop and begin to reason like Paul does. Um, Paul jumps into reasoning when he is provoked. Uh, let's see here. I'm going to go. Uh, he had a strategy. He had a strategy of response when he was provoked. And here's a big one. A big strategy for me is to stop and to pray, is to stop and to pray. How many of you, man, you, that's something that you need to practice more. Um, a lot of us, maybe during the week, here's what I used to do. I used to love prayer walking. And I would go and I'd prayer walk our local college campus all the time. And I made that a practice, a principle that I lived by. It was something that I did. And then as I did, I would pray for people while I was there. I, have, I had a strategy to respond to the brokenness of young people of today. Are our young people broken? Man, anxiety has eclipsed depression, hasn't it? We live in the most anxious time of, of world history. And it's, I think a lot of it is because, man, we're not pausing and we're not uh, allowing ourselves to be uh, in uh, reasoning communication relationships with young people. And so that's why I was like, man, I'm going to pray. I'm just going to walk around college campuses and I'm going to pray. And I'm going to pray that God would help me to reason and engage with the youth of our nation. How many of you like, oh man, this generation has gone wrong. I used to, I grew up as a millennial, right? And I, I can't tell you how many uh, times I heard, oh man, pray for millennials. They're lost. You know, and I'd be like, oh, thanks. I'm in the room, guys. I'm right here, right? And it's like, oh, that generation is going to ruin things or that generation is going to break. And we start to throw the generations under the bus, right? But then you'd ask, how many times have we sat down with that generation and reasoned with them? began to dialogue with them, began to ask questions of them. See, this is what Paul did. He reasoned in the synagogues. Instead of complaining or giving up on a young person, I, I challenge you, maybe let's walk in the example that Paul gave us and engage them. This is always going to be easy? Probably not. Uh, missionaries place themselves oftentimes in places of availability and consistency. If we're going to be a church that makes disciples, are we going to make disciples if we lock ourselves in our homes and never engage around us? No, but Paul knew how to put himself in a place of availability and consistency. I, for almost eight years, I had a place where I went to have breakfast. Every, every Tuesday morning, the waitress would know. She knew my, my special. What do you have? Oh, wait, I don't have to ask you anymore. She knew what I was going to have. Why? Because I wanted to be available and consistent. Do you guys have consistent patterns week over week that you can walk in and make yourself available to other believers? Or is it only, and in Wyoming, we kind of have this, we like that individuality. We like our neighbors to be five miles away from us, you know, and, and so we try to avoid people as best we can. But Christians, believers, we put ourselves in a position to be available consistently for those around us. Why? Because this world needs the gospel. This world needs the gospel. And so he was provoked. He responds with reasoning. He responds with reasoning. If you look back at uh, verse 2 in chapter 17, this was his custom. Paul went in as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Do we put ourselves, do we have a custom of being around non-Christians? Do we have a custom of being available to share the gospel with those who are not like us? If you don't, I encourage you to start practicing 
what missionaries do, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying this, Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. So he begins to explain and prove. So here's really an important thing for us as Christians. And I asked this question, I've already asked a few of you this morning. If I came to you and asked you, hey, if somebody came to you and asked you how to become a Christian, would you be able to answer that question in a clear and precise way? If somebody came to you today, tonight, today, you get done with church service, you go to lunch, and the waitress comes up to you and says, I'm having a crazy time. I heard you're a Christian. How do I become a Christian, and what does that even mean? Would you be able to explain or articulate that? And then would you be able to explain and articulate how it's not just a faith, or it's not just a narrative, or it's not just a story, but it's something that impacts us today? How does it connect to our reality? That's a part of reasoning, that we are able to connect it to the people, to the life that we live with the people around us. Uh, I want to look here. Let's see. I'm going to skip ahead to uh, verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogues. For us to be able to reason as believers, for us to be able to do this, what does it require of us to be able to be reasoning people? Well, I thought a little bit about this. And our culture is the enemy of this thing we call contemplation. Everybody say this with me, contemplation. What does it mean to contemplate? Contemplation or reflection. How many of you have a time where you sit down and you just think about how what you believe matches your life and you try to pair those two things together? That's called reflection. When you reflect on your life, when you reflect, am I living out my faith? Well, many of us, have been robbed of of that reflection, haven't we? We are the most entertained people almost on the face of the planet, aren't we? And so with all of these movies, there's never space to just sit and reflect. And so that's why, Christians, it's really important to give yourself some quiet time, some time to get away and to not just fish or not just be with your buddies, but to reflect on, is my faith matching the way that I live? Is my belief impacting how I live my life Monday through Saturday? Or is it only pop up on Sunday that I live out my faith? Right? Christians, we need to be people who are able to reflect. And with that reflection, then comes the ability to reason. To reason. The gospel is the best explanation for why the world is the way that it is. And so for us, are we explaining to ourselves? Are we connecting our faith to the reality? If I were to ask you, where did you see God move this week? Would you be able to answer that question? Or did you live and totally forget that he exists Monday through Saturday? I think a lot of us get into the busyness of our life and we never connect the fact that God is right there with us in the midst of every workday. Every time we check in, every hard thing that we do, every hard conversation that we have, he's right there with us. Are we connecting him to our everyday deeds? So how do we we, uh, explain our our beliefs in real life? Well, here's here's a, a quick thing, and we talked about this in one of the songs, right? We are all, 100, everybody raise your hand. All of us are going to die someday. If you're going to die someday, everybody raise your hand. That's 100% of us. That's a pretty high statistic, yes? All of us are going to have to deal with this idea that we are going to die someday. It's a core reality. The Bible explains the reason for death. What is the reason for death? We weren't created to die. Did you guys know that? 
Death is not a natural occurrence for us. It is a consequence because sin entered the world. Now all human beings die. God did not create us to die. Did you know that? He created us to live forever with him in perfect community. Death is unnatural for us. There's a reason why death stings so badly and why it seems so wrong. That's a reality that we face that the Bible explains so perfectly, isn't it? How about aging? Did you guys know this? This is crazy. Science cannot explain why we age. For everything we know, aging has, is unexplainable. Scientists can't figure out where's the breakdown because our bodies should be able to continue on, regenerate. We heal. Our cells replace themselves. From every angle, our bodies should be able to continue on much longer than the 100 years that we're given. There's no explanation in science for aging. But we know again what? That all of creation has been impacted by sin. And so where's the breakdown? Sin exists in this world and it has affected all matter, all experience the consequences of sin. And so our bodies age and break down. Anybody see a chiropractor this week? Anybody aches and pains when you get out of bed? You can say, I know God didn't make me for this. And I know someday he's going to make it right. Amen. Someday those aches and pains won't be there because he's got that gift for us, that new body. And so age is an example where we can connect our real life things everybody has to put up with to what the Bible says. See, we want to be people who have reflected enough to connect our faith and what the scriptures say to real life. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blaze through here. Let's see. Let's take us to the next point here. So he lives by principles, and he's good at reasoning. The intellectual type is good at reasoning. And then lastly, as we see a strength, he is good at study. What did Paul notice? What did Paul see? See, he, he, he studied the culture. He observed what was going on around him. He saw the idols of his culture. We call this cultural exegesis. How many of you have ever heard the word exegesis? Okay, this is exegesis. When you exegete scripture, you're looking at what does the Bible intend on saying? What was the intent of the author? You're exegeting. You're trying to figure out what was the intent. If you eisegete something, right, what are you doing? You're making it say whatever you want, right? We do this in interviews all the time where we pull little snippets out and you see uh, all kinds of politics going left and right. Everybody is pulling out these little snippets of each other and taking them what? completely out of context and making it sound like they're saying something they're not, right? And so here we get the culture wars going on. But when we exegete culture, we're just looking and trying to understand why is culture the way that it is? Why is culture the way that it is? Why, is the, why are things happening the way that they're happening? Um, to take you to a verse in Chronicles, there's these guys named the son of, sons of Issachar, this is First Chronicles twelve thirty two. It says the, uh, the sons of Issachar are men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. See these intellectual types; they're really good at looking at what's going on in culture, analyzing it, and deciding this is what we need to do. And we should be a people who have the the time to sit down and look, man. Why is it that there's this bent or this leaning in our culture this way towards this or to this sin or to this depravity? And we know it's because of sin. 
But the Bible is going to help us articulate and learn why those things are. So we want to be people who learn the context of our culture. So we're not just shouting out our own will. Any of us, how many of you would listen to a crazy guy uh, with a sign that says, uh, you know, some kind of crazy thing? You pull up your car at the intersection. Is this anybody have this panic moment um, where like maybe you're in a big city and this crazy guy with a sign comes over and says, the end is nigh. It's the end of times, right? And how many of you are going to roll down your window and be like, yeah, man, tell me about it, (laughs) right? But, you know, most of us won't do that. And sometimes Christians come off that way, don't we? Because we're not thinking about every time you share the gospel, every uh, every time you share truth, you're not just speaking into a blank slate, are you? Everybody has a life that they've lived, a context, things that have happened to them. They've got hurts. They've got joys. They've got sorrows. They've got brokenness. They've got family members, right? So every time you jump into just sharing the gospel, sometimes it helps to slow down and start to learn the context first that you're sharing the gospel within. And so uh, here's a little, if some of you have grabbed the discipleship, disciple-making packet that Becky and I have put together over these years, you're going to see this little tool. But I like to call this uh, a way of starting conversations, gospel conversations, where you begin with questions. You ask questions like, hey, would you describe your spiritual journey to me? I'm just curious what you believe about life, about why we exist. Do you ever ask somebody this? You, you learn the context of their life. You ever just ask somebody, what's your God story? Really wise man. So when we start a gospel conversation, a lot of times it starts with questions, good questions, because we want to observe the context that we're speaking the gospel into. And then we can admire. Uh, so this would look something like, I appreciate the kindness of people in your religion, right? We find common ground. We find common ground. Can you find common ground with most everybody? Yeah. Yeah, they're wrong. Let's, you know, and a lot of things we're wrong, right? But so we want to find common ground. So we ask questions, we learn the context, and then we find common ground. Hey, I really relate to that. I lost a loved one too, and that really hurt. And I'm still mourning that person, right? I really relate to that. You can admire or find common grounds. And then the third part is to admit um, and here's where Christians have a, a tough time. The, the, the difference to this part or this step is not saying, okay, now you need Jesus because you're a sinner, right? No, Christians, we don't need to do that. Why? And man, we need Jesus. So we come up and we say, hey, I, I went through that loss or I went through this, but, but let me tell you, man, Jesus carried me through this. He paid the price for my sin because I was in desperate need of a savior. What if we were people who walked around saying, I need Jesus instead of you need Jesus. People have a tendency to listen and perk up. I I was, uh, I heard this saying, and it's just always stuck with me that sharing the gospel is like one blind beggar telling another where to find food. Isn't that cool? Because really without Christ, man, we... (laughs) There's, there's nothing besides that pursuit. So ask, admire, admit is a great way to spark conversation. I want to take you to the Berean response really briefly, and we'll finish with weaknesses. Uh, but there in verse 11 of chapter 17, we see that when Paul stops by Berea, this is the good response 
to intellectual types. This is what we're looking for. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Remember, Thessalonica threw a fit, and they chased Paul to Berea. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Examining. The ultimate end, guys, of the gospel conversation isn't usually, hey, you agree with me on everything. The ultimate end is, hey, don't take my word for it. Look at what God said. I don't want you to just trust my word. Hey, guys, this is your pastor. Don't take everything I say. I hope you examine the scriptures every time I give you a truth or something that incites you. Don't just take my word for it. Look at Jesus. I'm not an authority. I'm just another guy saved by the grace of Jesus. Look at the word of God and let it speak for itself. So we want to be people who respond to intellectuals when they give us something with the examining, just like the Bereans did. They examined to see if these things were so. That's every teacher today, by the way. Every YouTube video, brothers and sisters, can we have our our hats, our examining hats on when we listen to different teachers? Because even some of the best teachers I've heard, the most renowned Bible teachers, I go, hmm, let me look and see if that's really there. And sometimes, you know, guys and gals, I find that it's not. We don't want to be a people who live on opinion. We want to be people who hang on every word of our Lord, okay? There's a lot of opinions about Christianity and what what Jesus is all about. So let's look at weaknesses really fast here. So intellectual style weaknesses, they can be prideful or dogmatic. Here's where you see intellectual types can sometimes express opinions in a very strong way and present it as fact. And they they don't back down from that, even if it is sometimes their own opinion, okay? Intellectual types sometimes fall in prey to this. They fall prey to being prideful or dogmatic. Dogmatic means to close subjects sometimes premature and won't look further after arriving at a conclusion. You'll hear people say, well, I've already looked at that passage in Scripture, and I know this is what that means. I don't have to look back at it. Brothers and sisters, we better make absolutely certain if we say something is the word of God, that it actually is the word of God. Don't base it on hearsay. There's some really, really inaccurate Christian hearsay. We've got cool phrases, but not all of them are true. And no matter how confidently you say them, it doesn't make it true. Uh, They tend to fall into info-based discipleship. Guys, if Sunday is the only time that you encounter the word of God, if you only come for really good teaching, you're getting like 25% of what discipleship is because Jesus spent so much time living life with his disciples and walking them through the circumstances that they found themselves in, didn't he? So it's not just teaching. Is teaching good? Yes, good teaching is great. We should put ourselves around good teaching, but that is not all of what discipleship is. See, see, info-based discipleship, intellectuals tend to view it as just passing good information on. And discipleship is an investment as modeled by Jesus. This is why uh, your participation in church shouldn't just be about receiving a good message. Many of us, uh, or many of us, not just intellectuals, we get absorbed in the study of the world. How many of you know the systematic theology of the Marvel Avengers? And you know that by heart, or kids, the movies that you watch, you can name every character 
We're really good at getting absorbed in the world, aren't we? We research how many IMDb, when you see an actor, you look up the, the actor's previous history, right? And you look at all the movies. We're really good. We're a researching culture, aren't we? Many of you have Google, like, you know, you're ready, like on the draw, ready to Google that information. Like, what's that mean? Whoosh. You're really good. That's your study, right? But that can get us too absorbed in the world sometimes. So a weakness for intellectual types is that they get absorbed in the study of the world. And research is helpful sometimes, guys, but it has limitations. We can make sweeping generalizations about whole people groups and forget that that doesn't apply to every individual, does it? We can get so absorbed in the world. Um, We talk past each other. It's going to be my goal Brothers and sisters, not to use all of the theological terms I'm learning in seminary with you, because I don't care if you use those terms or not. I care if you know Jesus or not. And so it's not my goal to sound impressive. In fact, if you leaving here, if you leave here thinking, wow, that guy really, um, I'm, I'm questioning how smart he is. I'm probably, well, good. It's my goal to make it as simple as possible. I'm not up here to to sound intelligent. I'm up here to just tell you the truth, right? We don't want to be people who talk past others. That's why it's really not important to use big, fancy words or unnecessary complexity. That's why it's really important for Christians to pause and define what we believe. John Piper, a quote from him says, I study extremely hard so that I can put the word of God painfully simply. I study immensely hard so that I can put the word of God painfully, simply. And guys, at the end of the day, there are limits to reason. You know, the purpose of the Bible is not just so that we know how to live. It's so that we can know God. The Bible is not a manual or how-to of life. It's a how-to know the Lord. Because the Bible was never intended to explain to you how the world works. It's intended to show you the way to the Lord. You see the difference there? And so a lot of people try to use the Bible to prove this point or that, or this point or that point. And it's just, it's not intended. God gave it to us so that we could know him, not just know really good information. And we have several passages in scripture that says, who can know the mind of God, right? God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. God has secrets out of Deuteronomy. He tells us he has secrets that only he knows. Guys, the angels, get this, the angels are astounded at some of the things that God does. We have a verse in Peter that says they're in awe of what, they're like, God, what are you doing with this whole saving humanity thing? They're astounded. They don't even know the mind of the Lord. Isn't that incredible? So there are limits to how we're going to be able to guess and to think about how God thinks and why he does what he does. But we can sure pursue him in reason because you know what? Reason is a gift that God gave us. So as just a reminder The Great Commission demands that all hands be on deck, every personality. So if you're an intellectual, we need you. There is no retirement from discipleship. I said this last week, and I'll repeat it again. There's no caveat for how to get out of discipleship, nor does God want to keep you from discipleship because it is one of the best things that you can engage in in this world. It's the most satisfying thing when we walk in the will of our Lord. We need each and every one of you to step up to be filled with the Spirit and be what God has created you to be. Brothers and sisters, a challenge. Would you look at the life of Paul in intellectual? Would you begin to learn how to live by principles? Would you pause and give yourself an opportunity to be a reasoning person? 
Instead of looking at the culture and, oh, whoa, this culture instead, what if we looked at it and we engaged it in reasoning? And then let's be good learners. Of course, we know Paul was a studier of scriptures. That goes without being said. We need to be a people of the word of God. But we also need to know the context of the world that we live in. Because God has put us in this time, at this moment. We're here in Riverton, Wyoming, at this time, at this moment for a purpose. And then uh, if, you, if you haven't got a copy of the Disciple Makers Handbook, please let me know. Brothers and sisters, I'm going to pray for you. I'm so glad that you're here uh, today, but let's be a church who makes disciples. Can we do that? Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we do. We pray and ask that. Father, we pray and ask that you would use intellectuals within our church. We pray that you would use the confrontational type people. And Lord, as we get to it, Lord, I pray that you would use everybody here, every personality, every quiet person and every loud person, every talented person and every person who's a hard worker. Lord Jesus, we just pray that you would use every person here to make disciples of all the nations. Because Lord, we know that that's the best thing for them. We know that restored relationship with you, there's nothing like it on this earth that we could experience. Lord, we pray that your salvation would come to Riverton. Lord, we pray that. We pray that for our neighbors. Pray that for our brothers and our sisters, our family members that don't know you. God, we plead with you for their salvation. We pray these things in Jesus' name.